You're an idiot. I hate your opinion. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast. It is episode eight. And in this episode, we're talking about the plot against America by Philip Roth. Uh, I'm Ryan, and this is Jacob. Well, you can't see me pointing at him, but he's here. Oh, what's going on, buddy? I'm excited. We're back in the mix. I say back in the mix. You know, there's going to be no big yeah. jump between our episodes, but you just got back recently from a, a trip to Europe, so yep. glad to be back in the studio. This one was one that we got to uh, read and maybe savor a little bit more, Yeah, think about more, and I think that'll pay off here in a little bit when we kind of get into talking about it. But yes, welcome to Better the Bookshelf. The podcast, the lifestyle, the the life, the, the cult. We dropped the cult like tag with the cult. Fair yeah. enough. So welcome to our little book cult. I think was the first first intro. Maybe. All right. So if you haven't read the book, uh, I I recommend you read it, and because uh, it'll make more sense. Uh, yeah, go back to the read podcast, it. and come give us a listen. We're gonna. Going to do a little quick, dirty breakdown of the summary, tell you a little bit about Philip Roth, who has recently passed. Unfortunately, one of the powers that we've determined that we have on this show is <laughs> if we mention someone in some form or fashion, whether it's an author or a chef, uh, <laughs> they uh, they will pass away. So hopefully that trend ceases. But yeah. yeah, we'll get into a little bit about Philip Roth, and then we'll just get into the meat of our discussion, uh, You know, the questions that we had for each other reading the book. Then finally, we'll get into our patented three-tier rating system. Where we're gonna put the book? This one is gonna be the first episode. We're gonna have a little bit of a little bit of spice there. So, and then we'll talk about what's coming in future episodes. So, let's just uh, let's just get into it. Let's do it. You got your uh, got I got your the little summary. summary so ready? The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. It is a story detailing a reimagined America in which FDR is defeated by Charles Lindbergh in 1940, as told by the author as a young version of himself. So we're dealing with alternate history. Yeah, and it was uh, it was definitely alternate. It definitely was alternate. So let's let's before let's we get about, into it, yeah, let's, let's talk about Roth. Let's talk about Roth. So uh, as you mentioned, he recently died. He was born in uh, 1933. Uh, died in uh, May of 2018. So literally, like the week before uh, before we did this book. After we had picked it, which is which is really weird, um, and he grew up in uh, in New Jersey, uh, died in New York. Um, he went to uh, Bucknell University of Chicago. He was involved with the Bard's College in New York, where he is buried. Um, very decorated uh, writer. Um, I forget what he won the Pulitzer for. He won the Pulitzer for American I, I Pastoral like in nineteen ninety seven. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he was, he was an interesting guy, uh, personally, uh, married, married and divorced in the, I think, uh, sixties. And then his, uh, his, uh, ex-wife got in a car wreck, like shortly after they got divorced. And apparently like that influenced some of his, some of his other work, um, which I thought was interesting and, and I maybe has something to do with, uh, the way that, uh, uh, wish Miss Wishnow died. Yeah. Is that her name? Wishnow? 
yes. Anyway, because apparently, Selden's like, he, mom. Yeah, he always kind of deals with, uh, or sometimes deals with that uh, that sort of female like death thing. But um, anyway, I, what I thought was really interesting, especially given the theme of this book um, and some of his other stuff and some of the people that he's been related to, uh, which is like he dealt a lot with like Jewish and Holocaust stuff. And one of his close friends, uh, was, uh, writer friends was, was very much the same, but he was like a flaming atheist. Like yeah. he hated religion. Um, and to, to the point that he like banned any sort of religious ceremony from his funeral. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I was trying to, I was trying to think about like, I, I think I read that in like the guardian or something, um, about his funeral, but like, what do you do at a funeral if you don't like pray and like? I mean, you just you can you can talk know. about you could talk about the deceased. I mean, a funeral isn't for the dead; it's for yeah. everyone they're close to to kind of have that moment of closure of just sort of sharing their thoughts and feelings about this person one more time while they're all kind of gathered together to think about it. Like, I I can understand that. There, you don't have to necessarily have religious elements to that you know obviously depending on how religious the people are you can have that that element to it as well but yeah yeah i I was trying to find um i was trying to find this quote that i i saw earlier and then lost um where he he talks about uh being religious but uh i stumbled across another one uh and he doesn't want to be labeled a jewish american writer at all And he said this about it. He said, uh, it's not a question that interests me, uh, talking about the Jewish experience in America, ironically. Uh, I know exactly what it means to be Jewish, and it's really not that interesting. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm an American. That's how he finished that that thought. Um, So kind of like uh, similar to Herman's ideology at the beginning of the book. um, Nice tie-in. Really, really throughout. Thank you. and uh, I think from there, we should just sort of jump straight into uh, thoughts and feelings. All right. So thoughts and feelings. One of the biggest and one of the reasons why I think that at the end we'll, we'll get to our rating, but I'm a little bit further down on this book than you. Well, maybe a lot further down on this book than you <laughs> um, is I think I set myself up uh, for a different expectation of what this book really was. Okay. Um, I like this time period. I like the idea and I liked sort of the premise and I was really expecting a little bit more open-ended a more sort of a little bit more of a top-down approach to kind of the story that's being told I thought there was going to be more of this element of we actually get to see into kind of the the machinations of this sort of like insidious thing taking uh taking yeah like how did Lin, how did Lindbergh get to where well, he is yeah that? it's just it's like you know I have no doubt like I, I I don't think that anyone is sort of immune from the idea of embracing this this totalitarianism but sure like I was expecting more of uh I don't know I was expecting more of more of a, a top-down view like I said and okay. this book really is that whole everything about Lindbergh and everything about this development in the government is a background to what is essentially uh, like an alternate history memoir. Yeah. Which is fine because I think that that in and of itself also brought about kind of interesting things with familial relations amongst this sort of turbulent ideological crisis time, right? Yeah. Because that's really what the book is about. The book isn't a traditional alternative history book in a sense that says, what if with this and we'll kind of, 
we kind of want to go through how this how this could have happened or how this would have sort of planted itself. Instead, it's sort of like here is this family while this sort mm-hmm. of uncertainty. Here's this family, a Jewish family that has this unique experience amongst this time where, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems, obviously, uh, you know, facing the Jewish community <laughs> and the world sure. at large. I'm not trying to make light of anything. Right. But, so I think that. You know, that unfortunately was kind of like, oh, I was a little bit let down with that. I still, you know, I still enjoyed parts of that story. And part of it, too, for me was going in, you know, anytime there's an alternative history, uh, anything to read about, I think that you're rewarded as a reader. One, if you have knowledge, if you already kind of have knowledge of the events surrounding or just the time period that's surrounding the story that's taking place, or if you go out to try to maybe look more into, like I I, I knew that Lindbergh was going to kind of be a central character, or at least I thought he was going to be a central character. Yeah. He's a central character in the background. He's He's, not really, he's not really a character that's ever sort of any time invested into uncovering, you know, who he is or what his motivations are really. It's, yeah. You kind of operate with a presupposition and then you see it kind of from the Roth family. But just like before reading this book, I thought, you know, I'm going to go and look into kind of Lindbergh and look into kind of this time period. And I did myself a disservice because a lot of the, like uh, a lot of the, the times, right? Like not so much. It's like, Oh, you know, it doesn't have to be exact, you know, exact timings like if they got dates yeah. wrong or if it's like eh, this isn't quite right but just sort of the timing with the rise of Lindbergh coupled with kind of FDR's third term it's mm-hmm. it doesn't it's it it's not there it's not the same time and we're talking like year year and a half post when FDR was elected and the a lot third of, time he was yes, elected and okay. a lot of the response that kind of propelled Lindbergh with this uh with America first it was like in response to things that FDR already did like with the war, like when we're sure, talking about sure, Ben sure. Lease in 1941, that was a big issue for America first. And that's yeah. kind of what propelled them in that. So that kind of, unfortunately that coupled with sort of my pre expectation of this book knocked it down a lot for me. So I, you know, you just I know, thought it was going to be bigger. I thought, well, not, not even that it had to be bigger, just that I thought it was going to be more, I thought it was going to be more about the plot against America and less about the sort of, perception of this plot against America, right? Got it. Like the name of the book is the plot against America. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Like how can this sort of this, this, I mean, you, you know, you see on the front cover you have, or at least on mine, you with know, this, a stamp with yeah. the swastika from Philip's dream. And it's yeah. just kind of this idea of like, okay, how could, how could Nazism, how could this like fascist thing take root in America? And you don't get that in this book. You get what could be results of that and could be kind of the ramifications for that, but you don't really get the you don't really get to see point A to point B like how that sort of develops in the minds of the general population or how that plan sort of sort yeah. of comes to fruition and so that that was a little bit of a letdown for me with the book that's really kind of going into it I thought it was going to be a little bit different and it kind of was not what I expected so I I could I can see how you got there um, but I I think you know I I disagree that like. I feel like the the entire book was the the lead up to sort of how you get to, you know, that sort of that Nazi state. I think to to your credit what what is missing is like how do we get like the sort of Lindbergh's and more importantly like the Wheelers, you know, in that position in the first place? Like there has to be a whole other set of societal conditions for people to like get behind that. And, you know, we, we've talked before about the conditions in Germany that, you know, economically and, and all of that um, post-World War II or World War One, um, 
that that really drove you know Hitler's rise to power. Um, that's well, yeah, it enabled ostensibly it. missing at the same point in American history. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, I guess I. It's, it sounds like you were much more subverted by your expectation than I was. I, f- I feel like um, uh, th- this book was was really interesting to me because it it showed on a very small level, like one how um, people who have um, you know ideals that especially today um, around racism would be you know closeted and even at the time to a certain degree like even the kkk was not like you know somebody that would you'd welcome into church they were around they were they were visible like you know but it's not it's not somebody that you'd you'd vote into office or anything like that but you know then you have the guy in the cafeteria again in uh in washington dc who's emboldened by his you know, his disposition and sort of the political climate that he feels like he can, you know, shout down the, sure. you know, quote unquote, loudmouth Jew. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think that it was it was interesting to me to, to see in those those small ways uh, the way that people can be emboldened. And I think more importantly, like how people's perception of things can also like drive that stuff forward because sure. you know I think more than anybody else maybe even Lindbergh depending on how you how you view his actions I think you know the the Jewish community like the people that were like-minded with with Herman and uh and guys like Winchell well really just Winchell and um they sort of drove on this this whole thing and made it made it into into what it was. And to, to me, that's the that's the plausibility of it all is not so much that you get uh, Adolf Hitler elected in America, but you get um, you get some sort of moderately you know bad people that are you know normal. I mean, racism it still exists today, and you know it's just it's much quieter. But you know, if you embolden people, you suddenly bring that to the forefront, and um, then you know at the same time you get people who start to speak out against that. You get polarization. Then you know it becomes plausible sure. that, that these things come to a head where they may not normally. Yeah, I I, I get that. The thing for me though is that is. Yes, and we talked a little bit about the show about this too, is, you know, we're talking about, you know, the late 30s, early 40s here, where you kind of are on the cusp of, again, the early 20th century, and you, I guess you could say this about any century in American history, (laughs) the early 20th century was not a great time as far as uh, ideologically, uh, as we were with ideologically in regards to sort of the differences between races, you know, eugenics was a big thing, and that's kind of one of the things that's, you know, a knock against Lindbergh is that, you know, he is, he is, you know, a self-avowed uh, eugenics sort of backer. He's, he's yeah. racist. He's bigoted. But the reality of it is, is that was a pervasive ideology across the board, it, uh, even, yeah. even across, even across the aisle. I mean, when you're talking about guys like, like Woodrow Wilson, you know, who was, was kind of a big movement or a big mover in sort of the progressive movement of the early 20th century. And right. FDR was a lot in a lot of ways influenced by Woodrow Wilson. I mean, you had FDR who was friends with Madison Grant, who was uh, yeah. an author in the early 20th century who wrote a uh, book. I forget what it was called. Let's look. It was called the passing of the great race. And in, in 1960, it was kind of this big 
sort of advocation for eugenics and just sort of genetic superiority. And it was a big influence on, lo and behold, Adolf Hitler. You have all of this, like, <laughs> this, like, this, this sort of pervasive ideology that, that permeates throughout a lot of people in the society. And obviously nowadays, you know, if we look at it through kind of the lens of our own understanding and, and just sort of on how far we've come as far as not having the sort of deterministic view of, of human capability based on, on, on race, or at least most well-reasoned people understand that that's not a, <laughs> that's not a, uh, a view that's tenable. Yeah. Um, that was not the case back then. There was legitimately, that was, that was just a normal accepted view that people right. were inferior of certain, I mean, even FDR, when you're talking about sort of, uh, their stance on on immigration, they were they were restricting people from Western and European, or excuse me, Southern and and Eastern European, you know, nations. They yeah. preferred Northern yeah. and Western because they felt that those groups were inferior. I mean, you had this this bigoted nature throughout. But the the big thing for me was that was getting from point A to point B is is you have an example of that in Adolf Hitler, and you have that bigoted mentality going through uh, to malicious acts and mm-hmm. that that sort of that mentality taking on another level in maliciousness and in, in action and just the horrible atrocities that we saw over there. And it was very difficult to see that kind of, I guess in Lindbergh or, or just even in our own situation, because you know, whatever you say about Lindbergh, like in, in, even in just going and reading about him a little bit, like a bigoted, you know, individual, obviously, but I think in a lot of ways with the sort of anti-war sentiment, I think well-intended, I don't think a malicious person. And I don't, even on the other side, I don't, I don't think the difference in, in our political climate was, I think our leaders. And I guess this is kind of where Wheeler steps in, although there's not yeah. a, a big yeah. background. That was, that was the thing that was missing is it doesn't give us the background on these leaders in our own sort of society that, that got on that path to sort of maliciousness. It, it felt like everyone was, you know, they had their own degree of, of bigoted or, or sort of ideological differences, but the, I never really felt like there was this maliciousness behind everything. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty sympathetic uh, thing to like take because I mean, by the time I feel like up until the point we got to uh, the the Homestead Act, um, and even around the time that like the the whole Just Folks thing was yeah. out there, I think it became clear to me that things were malicious. Well, sure, that's and and, and that's what I'm saying with it, the Homestead Act. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You look at it and you go, okay, this is a means of right of trying to decentralize these these uh, smaller minority and ethnic groups and to disperse them in order to sort of suppress them and even potentially subjugate them. Like, right, I, I understand that that was point B that we were getting to that degree of maliciousness, but we didn't really see the build up to that. We didn't really see the the path to that. Yeah, and what's uh, again in kind of a tale of of irony is you know that was seen as sort of the most the most sinister thing done by this government when in you know reality is better than fiction when you had things like yeah. FDR who was kind of the you know ideological opponent here where he was on the the right side of it well you know they had internment camps for Japanese Americans that were far greater number than in this sort of fiction thing so that's why it's like yeah. you know there is this weird there's not this well, there's not this black and white, right? There is yeah, this. Yeah. There is this spectrum, and I agree that that I and, and I'm not giving FDR pass too, because any like the Homestead 42 was the first thing in the book where you get to and you go, okay, this is boom. real. It's yeah. manifesting itself now in real discernible ways that you can see that there's a malicious intent behind there. Although we even talked about 
Yeah, so let's let's talk let's talk about like the the, cycle. the the potential like flip side to that though. Well, and I think that ties into one of the questions you had. Uh, yeah. So like one of the things that that I was I was trying to do throughout the entire book was try to sort of discern again like the reality from perception and. I continually like as things like just folks came out and even the homestead act kept thinking about like, was it are, are, is there a good intent behind this? Like, is, right. is this like an actual, um, an actual th- attempt to make things better? And so like, I think I'd like to get your thoughts. Like I, I kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, you could make a moral justification for, uh, for the Homestead Act, if you got, if you started out, you know, with with uh, good intentions, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, something like uh, Just Folks was intended to help, you know, assimilate cultures, um, and was was voluntary, right? Yeah. Like it wasn't compulsory, um, and after that, if people started resisting, doing things you know, like Herman was doing, having, you know, meetings in, in, uh, you know, their, their, uh, living room with their community leaders and trying to actively sort of plot resistance against the government. Uh, you had, you know, people like Alvin, you know, going to, to fight overseas, um, which was, you know, sort of an affront to the current political stance about the war. Um, and then, uh, you've got somebody like Winchell who's, you know, spitting fire and fury yeah. um you know about everything that's that's going on you could take a sympathetic approach uh or view of Lindbergh and the administration's action and say okay you have this like this uh very small community of people who are are sort of riling themselves up over nothing how do we prevent these people from causing real actual chaos and a logical thing is just like we say with you know with racism racism today like Go out and actually have a conversation with somebody. Sure. Like get to know somebody. So, you know, the Homestead Act may could possibly yeah. have been like um, a, a moral justification of that, like uh, to try to get people exposed. I don't, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, again, from first, you have to kind of take it. I, I think when I looked at it, my first thought was, okay, this is a malicious thing because you kind of take the going on, the events going on, I guess, in the world, the political yeah. climate at the time, and you see kind of you can draw parallels to, I guess, the rise of Nazism and sort of their political reforms against against Jews. But, yeah, I mean, anytime you have, um, you have, like, insulated groups, whether it's ideologically, whether it's ethnically, whether it's religiously or whatever, you create this friction, obviously, with, with other groups, you know, or, or just society at large, whether, you know, we see it now with people on the extreme right and the extreme left that, you see those groups are incredibly, incredibly insulated to the point that they're, you know, you have this whole yeah. large swath of society that's just sort of dragged into these chaotic mixtures because <laughs> of these very just insulated groups. They don't, right. you know, they don't allow themselves to have this interaction with, with, I guess, different ideological spectrums or, yeah. or different opinions or ideas or just different cultures. And so I can understand to some extent if you have a group that is like, like you said, the windshell thing was kind of the the big thing. But 
But the flip side of that is the Winchell thing was was after Homestead. Homestead was kind of a lot of this That's sort of true. a That's, lot of this yeah. like big build up that. and sort of uh, sort of response was to Homestead forty two. Well, it felt like there wasn't a whole lot leading to it. So my initial thought was I, like, yeah, this is this. I see the malicious undertones for this. Yeah, I, I agree. Like with your your sort of overarching sentiment that there wasn't a lot going on. Um, I mean, until, there was until there was. Yeah, there was all of this. And again, we're limited to sort of the viewpoint of the Ross and of, of I guess, that... that and he was small, nine at the time. Well, not even... not even. I mean, yeah, we're, we're kind of limited to that small sample size of their, like... I mean, they were pretty much an exclusive Jewish community, working class. You know, we're very isolated to sort of their viewpoint on things. So we don't... You know, whether or not that's representative or reflective of every... Of, you know, even, like, upper class, you know... Jewish communities or or just kind of America at large, you know, we're yeah. not we're not really privy to that information throughout this book. And so, you know, the way we see it is this kind of like uncertainty just because of these kind of assumptions about who Lindbergh is and and sort of maybe his what they perceive as like his connections with with the Nazis and, and whether or not he's a sympathizer for them. And that just kind of builds and builds and builds. And then Homestead 42 is really the the breaking point where you get these like actual reactions and and push yeah. back to a, a much larger degree from these communities. And so in a sense, yeah, I would wager that I would see the malicious intent behind it before I would really, really see the the like altruistic, you know, we want it. We just want to we want to disperse these 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 people, give them an opportunity to be more. Ab- absorbed into society as a as a whole, yeah. Which I think, as an idea, that's that's the thing is y- you still like as an idea. If you have these insulated groups, if you want to more integrate them with society as a whole, I can see it in in I can see a little bit the, yeah. the ideology behind it. But yeah, it just seems like it's a means of of controlling and limiting a group's power. And you know, it's it's kind of funny too that like um, from that perspective like herman always identified himself as american right like he yeah. said that throughout like i'm not jewish i'm i'm american uh a sentiment that you know roth also in real life shared um so you would think he might be a little bit more willing had he not sort of worked himself up into a frenzy to say yeah it's probably an okay thing for us to like all you know be similar have similar ideals uh experience you know a a similar american uh, you know, culture. Um, did did this book make you uncomfortable at all with like any current political stuff? Um, I knew you were going to. I, knew I you were I going to, to tie that. I have I, to. No, I understand that. No, mostly because I uh, a book like this where I can obviously go in and think of like parallels. I I tried my best to avoid that just for the sake of absorbing the novel for what it is and what it the story it's trying to tell about that, not necessary. So, I mean, this book was written in 2004. It's not like this is a recent publication that's some yeah. sort of tie in with our political system. Although, as I said previously, I think there is uh, I think the political climate more so in 2004, um, what with the Bush Cheney dynamic that yeah. maybe you see in this book with kind of Lindbergh Wheeler. Um, I think there's sort of a statement to be made there from the author, but as far as like political climate, no, I didn't really go trying to to tie that in just because I really kind of wanted to digest the story for for what it was at that time. But please, by I, all means, I know that I know that you had a very active mind uh, on this. So whatever your take is, I, I'd I'd be interested to hear. I, I think I didn't like. Okay, so the the first time I had a a uh, kind of like 
oh shit moment was yeah. uh, when I saw America First because you know we heard that we heard that so much you know well we have heard it the last several years sure um, and so that just that sort of clicked with uh, with all the the recent campaign stuff and then I had forgotten all about like. You know the the America First Committee and and all of that sort yeah. of stuff. But Protectionism isn't a new idea. No, it's not. A, it's not at all. It's it's not. But it's just sort of like the the language of it, sure, and, and the the recent like pervasive use of it. Well, that's because uh, I mean it's an effective. You know, it's an effective. I don't know strategy of it, it's an effective usage of language. America First, whether or not you're you're actually doing things that will ultimately benefit that entire group as a whole the yeah. idea is you know if you're saying that you're you're creating an image of what that means in people's head whether that's not necessarily real or yeah. whether that's not necessarily tang like tangibly you know going to going to allow that to to be a thing but yeah i i just i i thought it was I thought it was interesting and i and i do think that you can you can draw some parallels with you know things that we um, not to be overly political on our no, on no, our I, book I, podcast. I, I don't I don't I don't want to get into that realm yeah. ever. But like I just I think the the language and some of the behavior of society in the book and with us, especially the polarization sure. and the way that we you know use the media as, as a you know shoehorn for political um, agendas on both sides, very much on yeah. both sides. Um, I thought it was interesting. So then, um, well, as far as parallel, sorry, yeah, go, I, go I, ahead, I mean, go ahead. I mean, just as parallels go, like we have the benefit of living, you know, in this parallel. But I'm sure that this is, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that this is kind of a, I don't know, this idea, and I guess was it, it was last week or or our last episode we did 100 Years of Solitude, and yeah, just brought up the idea of cyclical time, yeah, and how that means as an individual. And I see this is kind of like another tie-in with that, yeah, just the idea of you see a lot of uh, not ideologies, but I guess just different variations of, of human thought and things that, that I guess manipulate people. People are, people are yeah. people, right? The things that, the things that pique your interest, you know, or the things that we find compelling, they don't necessarily change so drastically over generations. So yeah, just the idea of having these sort of cyclical language and just sort of mantras out there it's it is interesting and yeah. i'm sure that it manifests itself in other ways throughout other times but we only have the benefit of you know living and being cognizant in the one that we're currently in right now so yeah i mean i i will tell you um and obviously roth did not have this intention when he sat down uh, to write it because trump was not very much not in the political picture at that time um but when Trump was elected, and I know I've told you this before, yeah. uh, my grandmother called me the next day, and she's the same age. She's She was born in 1933, lived in Nazi Germany growing up, and mm -hmm. the first thing she told me on the, on the day after the election was I, the, all of the language and the way that people feel on, on both sides about things is exactly the way that things started in Germany, and I'm, I'm scared. And so I, I think I, I think you know, kind of given my own personal tie to that, I, I thought it was it was interesting with some language. But then I thought, okay, well, you know, Roth wrote this book um, that you know has very clear uh, sort of t uh, tangent toward uh, a certain like ideology. 
um, you know, what what did he have to say about the Trump administration? So I, I started I started reading and I thought it was funny uh, the, the way he summed this up in, in a couple sentences. He said um, it's a difference in stature between President Lindbergh and President Trump. Trump, by comparison, is a massive fraud, the evil sum of his deficiencies, devoid of everything but uh, the hollow ideology of a megalomaniac. And I, I just thought, like, th- I think... So if, Roth was a fan, is what no, you're saying. So, so I, I think, like, if you if you read about Roth at all, I think that, the, like, those two sentences just sum yeah. up, like, he's eloquent, but he is, like, vicious when it comes to sure. his ideology. Sure, sure, sure. Um, especially around atheism. But anyway, I got, I got a kick out of that, because I was uh, I was really curious, like, what uh, what he thought about him. And in reading this, this article, um, I accidentally discovered that in January of 2018, they are actually turning the Plot Against America into a six-part TV series, and David Simon, uh, the guy who did The Wire... Um, mm-hmm. is is doing this interesting probably won't watch it because I've read the book I will just just out of well, curiosity you, well that's because I think you were I think you received this book a little bit better than I did well that will also manifest. the wire is regularly regarded as one of the best TV shows well, I love of all the wire time. I've never seen it you I, haven't? I, Vicky and I just oh, talked wow. on our on our vacation that we need to sit down and watch yeah, it I think that that's uh I think that that should be a curriculum watching I, curriculum for yourself. I I agree and we'll we'll get around to it. So, um to jump back into the book now that I've like pulled now that you us, had your moment. pulled us out of it. <laughs> what one of the things I struggled with was like I feel like Sandy and Alvin were like good foils for like the conflict of like parents and like sort of the microcosm yeah. of everything and even like even uh Evelyn and, and Bengelsdorf, uh, all of that within the family. And you got more conflict out of like Evelyn with the family than you ever got out of Sandy. And I think that I think Roth, frankly, kind of screwed up there. I mean, I don't know if if you felt that it was believable that Sandy just sort of like, you know, clicks you yeah. know, back um, from wanting to be sort of a country boy to. You know, I'm going to obey my parents and forget about this this whole like yeah, sort of pro Lindbergh thing. It did kind of feel like that was going somewhere. Like he was going to be the because you had Alvin who left, who was yeah, you know, kind of well. Alvin came back and you had the Sandy and Alvin dynamic for a while, but it was it was sort of setting up like you had Evelyn, you had Sandy, and you were going to have this sort of internal contingent that was going to be this sort of ideological crisis, and it was to some extent, but then it very much just wasn't. Yeah. It, there wasn't really a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of explanation why it just sort of petered off with Sandy, especially, and it just kind of I don't know. I think that that was a thread that he could have pulled on a little bit differently because this ties into one of the questions I had, just okay. sort of with well, n- not directly, um, but just the idea of this story being um, less about the the plot against America, which is the title <laughs> of the book. Work that in. Less about sort of the point A to point B of this build in, you know, this undercurrent of potential fascism stuff and more mm-hmm. about just sort of here is a family and how does how do these political and ideological backgrounds that that kind of pull at, at the individual members of the family, how do they how do they I don't know, how does it disrupt that family environment? This was this story was very yeah. much about the family environment yeah. and the effects that all of these background things have on them. 
And one of the things that I saw, aside from just sort of the Sandy and Alvin stuff, was the was the Herman versus uh, versus Bess and just sort of their ideology about kind of how do you approach this conflict? Because Herman was very much, you know, we're going to attack it head on. You know, right. I mean, you saw it in Washington, D.C. You saw it with uh, Homestead and then you kind of saw it with Winchell, too. But yeah, just sort of like, you know. In Washington, D.C., Best didn't really want to be super confrontational with the hotel. And Herman just wanted to directly sort of approach this, you know, regardless of maybe if it was necessarily, you know, risky as far as just their their ends, their goals. And kind of with the Homestead 42 announcement when it was like, okay, well, she wanted to move to Canada because she kind of was afraid of this. And he was very adamant about staying, you know, being in America. He is an American and he wants to sort of fight it head on just... I don't know. I was kind of curious, like your thoughts on this idea of, of how do you, I don't know. What do you think is the best way when you're dealing with these like challenges head on, or you're dealing with this conflict, like do you approach it just, you just, you know, it's a brick wall that you're just going to bash through. You're just going to approach it head on. Or do you think you need to prioritize, you know, self-preservation and, and kind of restraint and, and handle it in a more meek manner? Because that was that was the big thing for me. Yeah. Outside of because the the Salvin and, uh, Salvin the Sandy and Alvin we'll call it the Salvin, Salvin. <laughs> the Salvin conflict I guess more so just sort of the the idea of uh, it was more so the idea of Lindbergh right yeah. Lindbergh yeah. is seen as like this indoctrination process or whatever yeah like, I I just kept getting like. It was trying to draw comparisons, I guess, to like the Hitler Youth, where you create this program to like idolize your leader in a way for giving you these opportunities or something. And yeah. kind of Alvin versus Sandy, if that was sort of that conflict, the Herman and Best conflict to me was more uh, the like core of the ideological approach to this book. It's like, do yeah. you do you approach things, you know, very sternly, very bluntly, and does that lead to you know the issues that you saw? Um, with uh, with Winchell, or do you kind of prioritize self preservation? Uh, you know, I think like I think everybody would like to think that they would stare a problem right in the eye and like live out their ideals. I think in reality, though, um, especially if you have you know kids involved, like like um, like this family does. Self-preservation really is probably most of our default and and really, I think, should be when your parents like, you know, to sort of, um, you know, take take the approach of, you know, either avoidance or, you know, if if really they thought it was going to be as serious as as it was, then, you know, Canada was would probably be the option that I would take if if I had a family. I mean, how do you feel about it? Yeah, it's tough. You'd like like I said ideologically you would want to say you know you don't want to back down from things that you you can identify this as this is wrong right i want to i want to fight back against this but at the same time yeah i mean self-preservation and i guess from a parental aspect like your responsibility as a parent you know should be the well-being of your children and making sure that they're going to be safe and yeah healthy and happy and all this other stuff and that seemed to kind of take a back seat because of the the sort of like I'm going to be ideologically op- opposed to this yeah because I mean you saw like the consequences uh, less so with them but like some with Selden I guess at the end with his mom it's mm-hmm. just you have this backlash from everything post uh, 
post Homestead forty two that it's you know that could have been that could have been the Roth family. But yeah, I I don't know. I I think I think that's that's super interesting. But you know the the one thing that sort of made me made me pause was when you mentioned the Hitler Youth. Um, I I I, th- I really do think that, that that he missed out on on the Sandy thing because after you said that it made me realize like you know there was probably some conflict you know in Germany um, because as my as my grandmother explains it like when they were growing up like they saw the Hitler Youth kind of as like the Boy Scouts yeah and uh, you know obviously there is a political indoctrination that that goes along with that and and uh, and all of that and. I'm sure for parents that were like, you know, politically opposed to Hitler's ideals or, or even his, not his ideals, but maybe his actions, um, they were in complete juxtaposition with their own kids. And it, it's, it would be in some ways ideal, um, you know, to, to stand up and set the example for, for your kids in, you know, this, this entire situation. But, you know, in reality, like you still have a family to run, you have to get kids to school. Like, how do you deal with a, with a Sandy, um, and, you know, set the example, but keep, keep life moving forward and, you know, not, uh, sort of, uh, you know, repulse or, you know, push him off any further by like forcing your own ideology on, on him. Like I, to me, like that was the that was the missing part of this this whole book, and you know the whole family dynamic up until really the end was just sort of a non sequitur for the action that that occurred, you know, really because of of forty two and and yeah. you know all of that. Um, what other questions did did you have? Oh, I just had a I had a bullshit one about the Lindbergh disappearance. Okay, just kind of that plot device within this book i mean it's you know you kind of give some option or you have some whisperings later on of the of the ideas that maybe it was wheeler that had him killed or maybe he was you know it was a plot by the nazis because they had kidnapped his kid right they you know he was in germany or something or you know the more probable cause that he his plane crashed yeah you know what did you but you know what what was your kind of sense of just Lindbergh just kind of disappearing. I I felt like in some ways it was just kind of a plot device to sort of bring this whole like, oh, and now it's fascism because Wheeler. Like it it didn't feel very, it didn't feel very natural to me. It just felt like it was kind of a enablement. Enablement? Is that a word? Yeah. uh, Whatever. It was an enabler for, uh, for Wheeler to kind of fulfill this prophecy of fascism in America. You know, I, I think I think Roth set it up by, you know, describing how often Lindbergh would fly places like unaccompanied and stuff. Yeah. So like there was always sort of a sense of like something could happen. Sure. Um and so I when it happened, I I didn't think, oh, it's improbable. Um, but I, I, I did think it was a bit of a cop out. Like yeah. you'd sort of just now eliminate ostensibly the problem. Uh, at at the heart of everything, and yeah, I th- I, th- I thought it was weird. I also, um, you know, we were we were talking a little bit earlier about like the uh, the theory that like you know <laughs> Hitler stole the uh, stole the, Lindbergh the Lindbergh baby, baby and was holding him hostage and and whatever. And I got I, I went down a rabbit hole with that, and I was thinking about like if that were really the case, like 
it's it really undercuts the whole message at Absolutely. the heart of this to me, which which is that, you know, any sort of um, inattentiveness to, um, you know, high moral standards and treating people with respect um, and our ability to sort of polarize ourselves and and uh, whip ourselves into a frenzy is a very dangerous thing. That in and of itself to me is the plot against America. The fact that we can, wow. we can, yeah, you like that? We can sort of, you know, get ourselves in, into our own pickle. And um, yeah. And that kind of plays into one of the things that you had noted. We um, talked about earlier, just the sort of self- yeah, like we not fulfilling. we not we not talked about that yet. We haven't. Oh, that was that was the beginning. So yeah, which brings me to like my my ultimate question, I guess, about okay. this whole thing is that, you know, was the entire action of this book a self-fulfilling prophecy uh or was it sort of by design by Lindbergh? Um man, that's tough. I think everything after after Homestead 42, you can see that it's kind of this you you do see this cyclical response in mm-hmm. that you have the the Jewish community and and mostly just Winchell kind of rally against against Homestead forty two and and very like viciously against it and sort of just tearing it down and decrying it decrying decreeing it as <laughs> uh, just this you know anti Semitic you know subplot for subjugation and yeah, yeah and and in response to that you kind of have the backlash from from the people that are, I guess, in support of just the, the government or, or more so that they just are kind of fed up, I guess, with the, with the backlash. Again, you, you create this sort of feedback, this sort of loop of, I don't know, it's the, the closest thing that I could approximate it to would be if you're trying so hard to like not think about something, Yeah, then you're going to think about it, you know, or if exactly. you're trying so hard to prevent something from happening, or from like when you got to like pee really bad. Sure. And you're just like, I got to do everything to prevent something from happening. And the process of expending all of that energy and all of that focus on doing it, a lot of ways you kind of subconsciously set the things into motion to make that a reality. Yeah. Well, then I know that's really simplistic on kind of an individual level. And there are a lot more things at play explicitly in this book. When you see the things that happened in Detroit and uh, just sort of the, the backlash to that. But I think that the concept that, that, is underlying here, whether it was intentional or not. I think the concept is sound. The idea of you can create these environments and you can create these situations that are hostile to you through your own actions of sort of pushing back against another perceived like instance. In a sense, you yeah. can create your own devil, you know, through actively trying to prevent that from happening, you know, in a way. Yep. And that's not to say that you should just be passive and complicit in things that you disagree with or right. that you find unjust. But I think it is an interesting thing to think about, to think about this idea that we are capable of creating the things that we dread simply by, you know, not overstepping, but just focusing so much into something. So focusing so much in opposition of something yeah. that we can, we can actually embolden. You that. sort of I mean, egg it on. Yeah. You, I mean, you see that in a lot of ways, like uh, not to tie in with current ideological things, but it's happening. No, again, you see, I mean, like I talked about whenever you see insulated, insulated groups, whether it's ideological or whether it's ethnic or, 
or religious or whatever, yeah. if you are antagonistic towards them or if you push back against things that you perceive as wrongs, you only embolden that sort of thing to an extent. Like that's yeah. you really empower them because you give them something to to say, look, this is this is what we were saying. This is what we were talking about. Even if it's not a reflection of reality, right. you're allowing at least their distorted reality to have something to latch on to. And so yeah, I think that that's a very potent concept to to think about and to deal with this this idea of how do you so then what do you do i don't know i mean that, but, <laughs> then but what do you do no that's that's the that's the crux of the problem right because um you know to to some degree you can't do nothing um yeah. you know you at a certain point have to act out if if things are going uh you know, a way that they shouldn't. I think Winchell, you know, was was very much right to to speak out against sure. some of the things he did, um, and you know, probably undercut himself by being a bit of an alarmist, you know, up front. Yeah. Um. I mean, Her- hell, Herman did it to himself again in the cafeteria when he's talking about, you know, uh, did you know that such and such was the first like Jewish, you know, federal judge or whatever the hell it was to sort of like, you know, in a loud way to to egg the, the the guy on um and yeah i i don't i don't know i mean you don't uh it's it's hopefully easier i think in our everyday lives to um avoid ever getting to some of these places you know to begin with so you know to to work against you know things like bigotry by having friends of different backgrounds by visiting different places. Um, you know, I, I think it gets really difficult when you get to these, these stages where things are so polarized and, and, you know, you sort of are, uh, you do have to choose black or white. Right. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's a dangerous thing. Or you just risk, you know, if you, if you tend to, you know, stay towards the metal, you just risk alienating yourself from, from everyone because everyone tends to, want to pull towards towards something well there's there's a book on my bookshelf that i've been i've been wanting to read called hitler's willing executioners and it's it's uh about your average german citizens who sort of did nothing who just stood by while these these programs rolled out yeah and and it's it's super interesting that you know sometimes the people who don't do anything are you know just as at fault as the people who do well sure because you would hope that when you have, I guess, extremes, when you have extremes, you're, the idea is like, oh, the extremes balance each other out. And the reality right. is that that doesn't happen. No, the extremes are emboldened by the other extremes. And the reality of it is, is exactly. you have everyone else that's there to balance the mountain. So if it's not, if you don't take responsibility for not even, I guess, I guess it'd be unfair to say for more than just your life. But I guess if you don't take responsibility for the things that you can control as, as far as trying to rein these things in and reel yeah. them in, then yeah, you're complicit in that, in that, you know, emboldening and extreme disruption. Yeah. And, and the, the things, if you think about just the characters in the book, right? Like mm. they're so insulated for the most part. Absolutely. I mean, the only people that they really encounter. So Sandy's the only one that, that goes out and engages with normal people. Although we never see these people. So we don't really sure. know the what they're in Gentiles. Yeah. With, yeah. with, with what they're about. And then you've got, um, you know, Evelyn and the, and the rabbi who are very much on the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
everybody else is just they're completely insulated. You don't yeah. ever see an outside influence um, from anybody else. So you, you kind of do wonder, like, is this not of their how own? much is reflected? Like, how much is their own interpretation of it versus mm-hmm. the, the actual like the actual, you know, yeah, I reality mean, that that is around. And and how does that interpretation, I guess, even fuel again, fuel the cycle of. You you assume the worst and you work towards that, and in doing so, you create the worst. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's really it's really interesting to to consider like sure. that they are not uh, you know very well educated in in sort of society. Yeah, um, which leads me to my my last question. Okay, which is kind of kind of a, a weird one, but. Um, do you think that the rabbi and Evelyn were sort of in this for self-preservation or were they just sort of idiots when it comes to like, uh, maybe idiots is not the right word, but I like idiots because, uh, <laughs> okay. but you know, were, did they really not understand what was happening even though, you know, people like really Herman were, were telling them um, or did they? I don't know. What, what do you think again, about again? I mean, two? when you when you flip it around, you look at it. I mean, the we're to be led that they're kind of the the crazy ones, right? But again, that's coming from such an insulated viewpoint that maybe they did experience things in a much more broad stroke that allowed them to have this sort of understanding that maybe the the community at large didn't. But I, I think that's the inverse of it. I think we're to believe, kind of from the story that that one. Um, what was his name? Bingelsdorf. Bingelsdorf. Yeah. That, that, uh, you know, that it was kind of implied that he was along for the ride because it was, you know, advantageous for him professionally. I mean, it got him on the, the OAA there, like, you know, regional or community board for that. And so I think that that was more so for him. It was, he was, it was beneficial for him politically, professionally, personally. And I think for Evelyn, it was more so she, you know, kind of just fell in line with that. Not yeah. so much that she was very mindful and going out and trying to kind of understand everything that's going on. It felt like more so she was just sort of along for that ride with Bengelsdorf more than anything else. Funniest part in the book to me was when... When she's just there after me and she's hiding in closets at the end. Yeah, yeah. and and, uh, and I Phil, know too Phillips, much. Phillip's thinking about... She goes full uh, Alex She's going to go to the bathroom, yeah. Yeah, never go full Alex Jones. No, never. Okay, so we, we should get to our, our ratings. Um, this will be the first big divergent one for us. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to keep it... Go first, and yeah. I'm going gonna, gonna to put it on top shelf. Top shelf, yeah. wow. Where, where, I know we don't I, have I don't visual remember. diagram. I knew you were going to ask me. I, I, I have lost track. I think track. for top shelf for you, I think you've got 100 Years of Solitude. I think you've got so much blue, and I think you've got all the light we cannot see. Yeah, but I don't remember in which order. Fair but enough. I would, but solidly top shelf stick it for in you. The, in the middle somewhere okay. there. Fair enough. Again, a lot of, you know, whether it's fair to the book or not, that's TBD, but um, a lot of my enjoyment that I derived from this book was lost just because of whether it's my expectations or whether it's just things that I looked into beforehand. So it did reduce kind of the enjoyment for me. So unfortunately, it's it's not going on my shelf. It's going to be donated. I don't think it's a bad book by any means. Um, but it's I you know to be fair, I did find it very 
dull in places. I, it, it, it did feel a little uneven. It wasn't really something that I was like super duper engaged in. Mm. So it's not something I'm ever really going to feel the, the compulsion to go back and reread. And, uh, I, I can't think about in my life right now who I would suggest this book to read. So I can't say that I would keep it on the bottom shelf for, for, uh, uh, recommendation as well so i know you donated your copy so you were more i will yeah i, I am bequeathing my copy of done. this i'll take to it. you right I'm now donating done. it to it's Ryan. even a hardback it is yeah it's a good copy to to put on the shelf okay so i i'm disappointed but i mean it's it but reading is is a preference yeah, like it is and what it is i i have like a personal bias toward just the world war ii genre right now so absolutely i think i think that's part of part of my stuff and the, the fact that this guy was or this kid was the same age as my grandmother at the time which is kind of yeah. cool to me um okay so this is a big deal for us. This is a big moment. I know. We've I actually, I, we actually, I feel we disagree. Sad. But I feel like, I feel like in talking about it and working through this, I think we're, I kind of, I, I understand why you're very high on this book, and I respect that, and I, and I will acknowledge that a lot of my disappointment in this book comes from my own sort of preconceptions going into it. So, unfortunately, I'm not perfect in that sort of shaded and ruined a lot. Yeah, maybe I, I would never. Say never. Maybe at some point in the future I would go back and read it, but I'm just it's not something that I'm like well gonna put on my, my calendar. It'll be it'll be soon. on my shelf when you want it'll it. It'll be back. on the top shelf yeah. for you to yeah. suggest. It's just right right there, right where you can see it. Okay. Yeah. Uh speaking of, of top shelf, um I did a considerable amount of uh drinking uh on my vacation and uh talked to I went into this cool bookstore in in, uh, in Edinburgh off uh, Grass Market Square, um, which Edinburgh was a cool place, man. Um, so we stayed like uh, right near where they they filmed um, the scene with Scarlet Witch and Vision yeah. in, in uh, Infinity War, uh, and uh, that like first fight scene. It was it was cool. It was a really cool area. So we walked into this bookstore and. It was, it's a small door, kind of an unassuming place. And literally from the carpet on the floor to the top of the ceiling, it was all books, wall to wall. In between rooms, they had like, um, they had uh, where the, you know, doorways are. They had shelves above the doorway. So like there were no walls. The whole place was just fucking books. So I went in and and asked the guy for for recommendation. you know, Scottish writers, and he made me like this this long list, um, but didn't have any of the books there that he recommended. I was gonna say, where's uh, my book? Where's yeah, my copy? No. So, what are we doing so here? I was like, I was like, okay. So then um we went to uh went to Italy. Um I got way too drunk uh to do any sort of productive book stuff um there, but I did see a bookstore in Croatia, I think, uh, and I couldn't find any English books there. So then I ended up going back and talking to one of the people that we traveled with um, and just said, hey, like, you know, who do you who do you recommend? Like this is, you know, I kind of want to get a flavor of of some of the places we've been. So he ended up recommending um, Ian Banks, which the bookstore owner also recommended, but didn't have. um, So Ian Banks um, and I've been struggling with which which way to go. So he he had sort of two personalities. 
Ian Banks, which did like literary fiction. Um, okay. Then you had Ian M. Banks, and I think I'm getting these right, who did like the science fiction stuff. And then later in his life, he merged the two and did like a literary science fiction. So don't get too excited. We're not doing we're not doing that. We're gonna. It's like we're jumping back into genre fiction. Again? Yeah. No. 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 We're we're not. Uh, I figured it was too soon. I'm I'm not not yet healed from foundation. Oh. Um. So we're gonna we're gonna read a book about uh, a rock star who is basically struggling with with his fame, um, and uh, the first the first line of the, of the book is two days ago I decided to kill myself. So okay, uh, we're gonna start from there. Um, so it's called uh, Espadair Street at E S P E D A I R Street. Um, it's by Ian Banks I A I N which is hard to hard to spell. Um, so yeah, he's, he's a Scottish writer um, from just, uh, I think, north of, of uh, the Edinburgh area. I think he's from Fife, if I remember correctly. But anyway, so Scottish, topical to my vacation, okay. and that's, that's who I've chosen. So uh, we're going to do that in two weeks. Fantastic. And then after that will be my choice, and I'm going to have to do some soul searching cuz my I have not enjoyed the last two books that I've uh, that I've put up for us to read whether it was Foundation and then this and you know I guess I guess I'll you count didn't do this bad on I'll this. count this as a victory cuz yeah, you, you didn't do bad on I, this at all. We'll, we'll just say we average out to middle shelf or yeah, like I mean, middle that's, half. That's that's fair. I, but, I uh, yeah, I mean you can you can be wrong and, But yes. And, no, I mean that's <laughs> yeah. I, it's just I need to get my mojo back with my book fixing. So Yeah. So I'm I'm crowdsourcing now. Like I'm 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 like fantastic. Hey, yeah, like just I'm asking people for weird things. I've still got I've still got some things in the tank that I think I want to go to, but uh you know, I want to keep it I don't want to I don't want to get in a pattern of of suggesting the same things. I I definitely want to get us, you know, since we're still in the early stages of this, I definitely yeah. want to get a nice variety. Same here. All so right. We'll, well, that's we'll, we can look forward to that later. So good discussion today. Um, look forward to next next episode's book, Espadare Street by Ian Banks. And that's it. That's it. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>